Welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, a thrill for the week of May 29th. On this week's show, www.nevergetoveryou. Look around you and you'll see nostalgia is everywhere. Why is it such a pop culture engine? And is it good for art or some kind of strange disease? We'll go right to the source and interview one half of a major nostalgia act for two thirds of our hosts, James Bryan from the pop band Prozac. And feminism on the big screen. Mad Max and Pitch Perfect 2 squared off last week over box office notices and for which movie could gain more feminist praise. We'll talk about the movies, what worked and what didn't, and whether their messages matter. I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And I'm Julia. And this is The Thrill. From remakes to reboots, from reunions to spin-offs, nostalgia has long been a real driver of pop culture. After all, it's like the idiom says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it feels like these days, nostalgia is everywhere. It's in our TV and our movies and our music, from Ghostbusters to Fuller House to literally a reboot of the kids' CGI show Reboot. It's in our politics, see Trudeau, Bush, and Clinton. And it's in our social media with Instagram sepia filters. It's even in our food and drinks with the news this month that they'll be making Clearly Canadian again. And so we thought, who's a better guy through all this nostalgia than someone uh, that we on the show are nostalgic about? James Bryan is a Juno-winning musician and a member of the Philosopher Kings. He's produced songs for the Backstreet Boys, Jason Mraz, and Lisa Marie Presley, among others, and he's performed and toured with Nelly Furtado. But he's perhaps best known as Milo from the animated necklace pop duo Prozac, who'll be reuniting for their first show since the turn of the millennium at the Toronto Convention Atomic Lollipop this July. I'll admit I loved Prozac as a kid. So, James, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, that was my life. <laughs> so, for those listening uh, who may not know about Prozac, uh, tell us a bit about what the what the group is, how it, how it came about, because I guess describing it as an animated and necklace pop duo might not be exact. That's a good start. Yeah. Yeah. Prozac, I don't really fully understand it even now. But, um, yeah, it started as a joke. Between, actually, it started as a fight between me and... Uh, Jay Levine, bass player from the Philosopher Kings, who became Simon of Prozac. And after we had a fist fight after a Philosopher Kings gig to get over it, we actually had a writing session and we ended up coming up with the first Prozac song, which was Europa. surprise that we could write great songs together but that's how it started nice so you guys are getting back together uh, on july 18th for a union show what why 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 i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i'll tell you one thing uh jay is absolutely terrified so um so he's gonna need lots of support from prozac fans everywhere that it's gonna be fine and that they're they're excited to see him um because yeah the last time what last time we performed was actually in the previous millennium so it's been a while, yeah. Why? Why the fear? Why the fear? Well, I don't. Know. You have to talk to him. I'm actually really looking forward to it. No, it's 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 amazing. Prozac is so much fun. Like the songs that when we wrote them and performing them is a lot of fun. So I'm hoping it'll still be fun. What does it feel like to be a nostalgia trigger for so many people? The power is immense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty weird. I 
I'm just thankful that like you know people that love Prozac back then you know uh, if they come up to me tell me that that you know how much it meant to them it's definitely a compliment so you know just try, try to take it as that yeah and Prozac is, is this weird thing because it's it so clearly I think could not exist today like for for various reasons including the fact that it's a lot of like there's like AOL sounds and there's like a lot of sort of electric uh, you know it, it, it there has a dated quality to it and even if you watch like the animated Ooh, stuff like thank you for that copy salt <laughs> <laughs> Not what I meant. And but, it was an I- ICQ sound. Yeah, exactly, You're right, yeah. ICQ, which is very of cutting time. edge of its time. But yeah, yeah we right. knew that one would kind of have a quick short, uh, shelf life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that oh, sound. it's amazing. You still remember ICQ? Yeah, for anyone that knows ICQ, it was pretty cool. It was a great time. But My yeah. username was Raver Girl in all caps. <laughs> amazing. Um, but but you, you, know, you mentioned that you sort of didn't know like you're surprised by the, the the response that you've been getting. What do you think it is that has made people so excited about Prozac, even still to this day? It's something that started as a joke, and now you know in 2015 you're gonna make a, do a reunion tour. Sure. I have no idea. I guess it's the fear of death. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, nostalgia. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I have my favorite shows. I have my favorite foods. I think everyone. Yeah, it definitely touched a nerve at a specific time and. You know, you never know when you write a song if it's going to do that. And I'm just thankful that we managed to do that with very little effort and a lot of fun. <laughs> so are, do you have a sense that that nostalgia is having its moment right now? Uh, you know, I brought up all those those things in the introduction, but uh, do you feel like there is more uh, nostalgia than there has been before? Or I don't know. Like, I'm like way older than you guys. And when <laughs> I grew up, there was a show I used to watch called Happy Days. And it mm-hmm. was like about people in the 50s. And they had like, and then there was this other band called Sha Na Na, and they were like these this fifties revival, and that was like, dare I say, the seventies. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. I don't think it's been around. Maybe more now. It's I guess in the world, yeah, the world now. There's like you have access to all information from every era, so people are kind of just, you know, picking and choosing what they like. But as far as yeah, the actual nostalgia thing, I don't know. But you tell me, you said you were a Prozac fan. So, yeah, so what do you think? I think that nostalgia is having a big moment right is now. It? And it's fueled uh, a lot by sites like BuzzFeed mm-hmm. and ah. just social media in general, especially because um, millennials or I think snake people. I don't know if you saw <laughs> snake that. Snake people. That's I've not <laughs> heard that. There's a new Google Chrome thing you can get where it will change um, all search results of millennials to snake people but anyway (laughs) it's really funny you know um so i think that that our generation at least suffers from some arrested development and so we really like to be nostalgic and take a bunch of quizzes like which member of prozac are you or yeah who are you on party of five or dawson's creek and i think that so there's just so many more opportunities to become nostalgic like i think on buzzfeed there's even a nostalgia page and I can't oh, go yeah. a day without, like, every day I check my Facebook or something, I see some quiz that someone's posted about a band or TV show or movie from the 90s, and wow. I always click on it because it's just so, you know, you just, it makes you feel, like, warm inside and you want to, yeah. Well, that's all good. I have no complaints about anything that can make you feel warm inside. But you said 90s, so, but the same thing was happening, like, every, the 80s were really hot, mm-hmm. you know, like, in turn of the millennium <laughs> so don't you feel like there's just always you're going to kind of look back on styles yeah anyway. i just think we have more opportunities to dwell on it you know? whereas before <laughs> yes. you might like find an old box in your house and then look at some pictures or old albums <sighs> you have now it's like you can be constantly inundated 
are reminded mm. of the past. I've read that um, nostalgia, and obvi- obviously it invokes like wistful memories, right? And and in a consumer way, uh, there's a journal of consumer reports that states that it makes people part with their money more easily because it brings back all these good me- memories. And when you have good memories, what is money to good memories? And also that nostalgia counteracts um, loneliness and and this increasing like digital age when all we do ever do is stare at a screen that it would make sense that if it's an antidote to loneliness, it would make sense it would be ramped up these days. Snake people. Snake people, that is so beautiful. (laughs) But you know what, that's actually kind of, I think Prozac was perfect then for that because really, I mean, it was about looking for love, you know, being kind of lonely, constantly on a search. And I mean, all the songs, I mean, we were writing like really kind of old school pop songs, but with like, you know, a sense of humor and just then adding whatever, some electro pop. Sound when you started writing those songs, you yeah. said it sort of started as a joke. Did you think they were bad at first and then realize like these are actually pretty good pop songs? No, are you kidding? No, every time I like, <laughs> no, if I make music, it's like it comes from my heart anyway. And like, we like, yeah, we absolutely loved it. But when we decided, okay, when Jay started putting on like the Simon accent and, and, whatever, it, yeah, it was definitely like we were laughing, we were having a good time. And I think that fun, is definitely injected into you know the songs and that I think that's part of the good stuff yeah just for anybody who doesn't know um, Prozac are not British but <laughs> oh yeah are you British kidding accent. the Brits man I just I was living in London for the last five years and yeah you know one thing I realize now is the Brits do not like people that try to do a British accent and don't do it very <laughs> did well. They, did you go up to them and be like, hey, I listened to me on Prozac? They're like, ooh. No, it's, <laughs> can I tell you? It's just, but it comes up. It's like, you know, accents are such a big deal for them. Yeah. And it's like when we were making Prozac, we were just like, we were, as they say, taking the piss. I mean, we were just having fun. And it's like, so he, I thought it was a good British accent. You know, it was, just, it was a character, right, mm-hmm. Simon? But it was came from the heart. It came from where Jay was at, you know, I think, personally. And... And then, you know, my character, Milo, you know, is more maybe just like whatever, the comic foil. And I came up with the only kind of weird accent that I thought I could, kind of pseudo Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Did um, you, sorry. Austrian. Did you know that it would be so popular with kids? <laughs> no. No, I mean, the thing is, that's the thing. It's like when you sit down to write a song, you always are trying to write, you know, the biggest hit. Mm-hmm. and just, or, or are you just trying to, like, first of all, just write something you love? And then, but you know, wouldn't it be nice if everyone in the world loved this? But you really never know. And that, what I, looking back on Prozac, uh, you know, when the whole thing was really effortless, and it was a lot of fun. And because it kind of came out of this whole weird, terrible dynamic with me and Jay, where we absolutely like couldn't stand each other almost when we weren't doing it, and then when we found this beautiful place, it was like really special. So, yeah, thank. Mm-hmm. Thank music for Prozac. <laughs> well, it, it's weird because whenever people have this like nostalgia for the '90s, I guess specifically, I guess I'll talk about. There is this like weird sense of, uh, you know, there's this weird dissonance of like it's so bad, it's good. Like the outfits are so crazy, and like the the music is so is so different in many ways, so different and earnest than what we had now. There was like think about Britney Spears even doing uh, "Oops, I Did It Again," which is like this weird schoolgirl thing, and like obviously was sexual, but at the time, like no one was like, "Oh, it can't be sexual. We don't believe it's sexual," even though it, like very clearly is. It's just <laughs> like a, a totally yeah, yeah it's just like a totally different era though. Like you know, and your mom didn't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's but there's this idea that I'm interested in the idea of like you putting in wanting to do 
like the art that you wanted to do and the music you wanted to do. And now today, like your people see it as nostalgia. And some to some people, being nostalgic, um, that's like uh, an insult to some in some ways. There's like that you're a nostalgia trigger. That your nostalgia act can be kind of a bad word. Do you do you take it that way? No, are you kidding? No, <laughs> literally because. It's so funny. The only people I think that take it that way are maybe not big fans of mm-hmm. the act. But it's like, you know, you know, tomato, tomato. Some people are going to love it. Some people don't like it. Mm-hmm. It definitely was, like I said, we weren't trying to take ourselves seriously. And I think that's, and we just, I'm, I'm totally, I mean, I love whatever we came up with. It was, yeah. So it was like I stand an experiment by my that worked out really It was well, a crazy so. experiment that we had no idea what would happen and Boom! It was yeah, worked out. <laughs> uh, well, in my introduction, we, we I, I just mentioned that you had written a song with the Backstreet Boys, and that's another group that that also had a a, a much hyped and anticipated reunion. Those guys, I think, still tour now. I think yeah, yeah. with and like Kids in the Hall, for instance, uh, New Kids on the Block. Sorry, New Kids on the Block. <laughs> I uh, remember Kids in the Hall, nice nineties yeah. show. Actually, TLC or the remaining. The remaining two, yes, and Nelly are Nelly opening Furtado. for yeah, no, 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 just Nelly are opening kind of... for New Kids on the Block. Yeah, wow. or maybe the Spice Girls. Well, it's funny, yeah. It's like because you know, as a musician, it's like you're gonna keep playing as long as people want you mm-hmm. to come out and hear you play. But yeah, it is kind of strange. Yeah, you're saying so now. There's like a particular moment where it's there's more room for like people to be nostalgic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's that there seems to be like, I mean, there's definitely like that postmodern kind of ironic, yeah. yeah, I like it, but it's so cheesy or something. Is that, I mean, that there, what we didn't have that really as much when I was a kid. Yeah. Or it was also the idea that that the old stuff is what it is what the good stuff is necessarily. I mean, that's always been the case where it's like play Freebird or whatever, you know, like <laughs> play the old stuff. But hip hop gets that all the time. Yeah, exactly, right? But oh yeah. But now we're yeah. seeing, you know, artists, you know, basically put on shows that are just the entire album of like one album that's their classic or whatever. Uh, you know, we're seeing these reunion tours. Um I guess the question is like whether or not that's a bad thing. Like is is this in some ways uh stunting uh, you know, innovation in art and, and stuff. Uh, you know, getting just people to redo their albums uh, on stage is that is that holding things back in a way? Uh, if that's all that was happening, totally, I'm totally with you. But it isn't. You know, there's like millions of different things happening. A lot of great new music and great new bands. But yeah, I mean, like these days, you know, if something's been done, now you got to take a piece of it and mix it with something else that's been done a lot. So I think it's harder. You know. It's like harder to come up with like a totally new unique style or yeah. something. I also think that if bands or artists are being asked to play their hits constantly and not their new stuff, their new stuff just generally isn't very good. I think also people just like what is familiar to them. I mean, yeah, I think nobody's people, favorite song from a band is the brand new song. It's the yeah. song that they've already played on the And I think everybody's for favorite weeks. music is what came out when they were coming of age. I think that's probably yeah. true. Because of the nostalgia factor, it evokes mm-hmm. a certain amount of memories it reminds you of your formative years mm-hmm. and and how everything was like shiny and new and heartbreak for the first time and falling in love for the first time and all, all kinds of other non less mm-hmm. less cheesy things too. Mm-hmm. but to be clear i mean like i think this has been going on for a long time like i don't Certainly, i don't think that forever. this is happening you know exclusively right now you mean you mentioned for instance happy days and and yeah, that yeah. was a show from the 70s that was about the 50s and uh, adam gopnik of the new yorker uh proposed that there's like a 40-year rule where there's a lot like a lot of pop culture is obsessed over what happened specifically 40 years ago and his examples are like i thought it was 20 um, years well there's like the I 20 year the 40 exactly and yeah like yeah and that's the thing <laughs> Because right? now we're looking back to like 2005. Mm-hmm. That really was those 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago, I was like, 
I wouldn't say the same person I am right now, just because of my particular age. But like ten years isn't a huge isn't a huge leap, but right? That's the issue. I think there's been such an influx of stuff to consume in the past ten years, which is uh, there's more there's we've consumed more pieces of art in ten years because of our access to it with the internet than we did the mm-hmm. ten years previous and ten years before that and so on. So maybe that's why the cycle is shorter. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just wonder whether or not there is stasis. And you mentioned that, like, yeah, there there are things still going on. But even if you look at uh, what, you know, what pop music is a, is a great barometer of, like, where we are right now. And so much of, of what pop music is now is, is like, going into funk and soul and stuff that is, like, that 30 years ago sound. There is that, like, nostalgia that, you know, maybe we're not pushing in the way that, that – that is innovative, that is taking things back a little bit. What are you talking about? It's uptown funk? Yeah, like uptown <laughs> funk is a I thing. Know. Adele, uh, for instance, you know, the sound, the music of Adele. Really? I mean, yeah, but I don't know. I guess because I'm still doing, I'm making music every day and I'm mm-hmm. trying to justify, you know, if I want to justify my existence. It's like, <laughs> you know, if people, you know, someone's going to create something that they feel evokes some kind of feeling for them and try to share it. And then if it's really good, people like it. So for me, it's like when Adele came out, uh, I don't know. She definitely touched a nerve because her voice was like, just had that raw emotion that, mm-hmm. you know, you don't hear in a lot of stuff because, you know, as a producer, it's like most of the things we hear on radio for sure are so processed the vocals. And she was just like, great voice, raw. Right. And it's a classic song, it's kind of stripped down. So there was room for that. So I don't know. Yeah, what do you want to see, Adrian? Like some shoegaze dubstep or like... Some yeah, let's make them all. Can I tell you? I was just listening to... I was trying to find on Spotify the other day, uh, Jungle Classics, because it's like that... There was like a moment where it's like, man, I just loved, you know, the Jungle. It was coming out of the UK, right? That's coming back a little bit. Is like it? Rudimental, like pop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. In the UK, it's always... But that's like... Because now there's a whole generation of like... That like that was the music they grew up to, and mm-hmm. it's like you can build on that. But yeah, yeah, I know that I'm nostalgic for. See, that's what that's what's next. You heard it here first. <laughs> Jungle. It's there you go. The next Come big on, because it was the thing before. Well, James, thanks for joining us. Uh, so the show's on July 18th uh, at the uh, on this at the Science Center in Toronto, which is amazing. Uh, is there anything that people need to know about uh, that show on July 18th? Expect the unexpected. Uh, there's going to be it's a part of a crazy weekend long festival atomic lollipop mm-hmm. and also we're going to have some special guests Whoa. you may be surprised there's a lot of like Prozac fans where you wouldn't have expected them who are also in the music uh, biz so um, yeah the other thing though is listen there's we used to have these two big heads that we toured with uh, of Simon and Milo and somehow they got lost over the years so I just want to put a call out there uh, we are looking for the heads yeah. they're about six feet by eight feet uh, there's two of them and they weigh like I don't know a thousand pounds each <laughs> um, so if you see them Please return them to, or bring them to the Science Center or contact me. Um, you can go to my Twitter. It's at, at James Bryan UK. It's B R Y A N UK. And or at the Facebook page for the event, I guess, Atomic Lollipop. But um, looking forward to it. Yeah, and those are the heads that are in the, the Juno performance, you guys. Absolutely, the one and only. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Good luck getting those back. <laughs> so I imagine <laughs> someone literally them. lugging them yeah. into the Science Center. Probably a prize. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, thanks for joining us, James. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a couple of pretty good weeks for feminism in theaters. Pitch Perfect 2, the follow-up to the surprise 2012 smash hit about a plucky group of a cappella singers, conquered box offices the weekend it came out, and George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road came a hearty second. 
the Bellas are suspended. You're being replaced by the European champions. Sound machine. How are we gonna compete with them? I'm not supposed to have any ideas. I'm the hot one. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm the hot one. If we win the world championships, will you reinstate us? If you win it. Pitch Perfect 2 was directed, written by, and features a cast that's almost entirely made up of women. Mad Max Fury Road finds Charlize Theron's badass rebel Imperator Furiosa taking the helm of a movie with a man's name in the title. Of course, that's led to discussions of which of those movies is more feminist, and we'll get to that tricky question in a bit. Let's start by talking about Mad Max uh, Fury Road. Emma, what did you think of that movie? I loved Mad Max. I usually get really bored in action movies, not because there's a dearth of women, but because there's just a lot of action and not enough story. But I thought Mad Max was excellent. It was so bizarre and engaging and fun to watch and weird and scary. But uh, I could have it could have used maybe a few more campfire scenes. I like when in an action movie when they have, you know, like they stop, they take a break right. for a while, they talk. There were I think maybe one or two of those scenes. But I think that the the plot on its own and the and the um, it was just such a good movie that I wasn't bored by the action. But obviously because it was a movie that had lots of women in it and in a genre that usually doesn't have many women in it, we have to now ask, is this a feminist movie? I would say that it was a feminist movie. You had a plot um, about a dystopian universe in which all of the women in uh, Margaret Atwood, uh, what's that book called with the, the red, what's Margaret Atwood's book with the Forks and Crate? No, the other one. Handmaid's Tale? Yeah, Handmaid's Tale. So it's similar with the the breeders, um, women who just have to pump out milk and babies and that's their only function in society and Furiosa, Charlize Theron's character, um, sort of comes to their rescue. Morton Joe is looking for a healthy male heir. These wives are healthy beings in this toxic world. The wives are clean and that's something that's very rare in this world. We're kind of just like the princesses of the post-apocalyptic world. You want to get through this? Pick up what you can and run. And I thought that made it a feminist movie. Also, there was the inclusion of the um, old broad warriors. It's not every day that you see old women um, or elderly women fighting and shooting guns. And I thought that was really cool. Um, and then I saw... Because always when somebody says something is feminist, then somebody has to turn around and say it's not feminist. That's like the cycle of these things. So I think it was, um, I think her name's Anita Sarkeesian, the Mm -hmm. woman who's uh, at the front of the whole Gamergate controversy and is outspoken on these issues. And she had some thoughtful things to say that I really disagreed with. And her main argument, I think, was that Mad Max Fury Road is not a feminist film because the women are still caught up in this systematic uh, cycle of of male violence and that it's just sort of it's the same old story a lot of men fighting each other only this time we've, we've injected some women in there and that it's still this patriarchal uh, violent society just with women working within it and that makes it not explicitly feminist but I would like to think that in a post-apocalyptic dystopian society where people eat each other and <laughs> rape each other constantly that women wouldn't be um above violence like that that 
feminists would take up arms. I think I can suspend my disbelief. Like, I don't, I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I like that the women were fighting. And I, I don't think, I think there's, sorry, I just asked you what you think and now I'm talking. But I think that there's this weird assumption that, like, women don't do violence, that it's always male uh, male dominated and perpetuated, but I think women can and would be just as violent in a, in a situation like that. Zeroing in on what appears feminist about this movie is that um, the, it concentrates on the fact that these women will not go gentle into a state of oppression um, and fight back, and, as opposed to just being like, when things go back to the quote-unquote natural order of things, which is something else that I read, that they would just be happy to be breeders or constant mothers or something and so this idea focuses on like actually no thank you that's not really mm-hmm. what we're interested in and I think that's where all the feminist furor is concentrated on yeah and also that you know I think that there was even a scene in the movie that sort of addressed this misconception that women are naturally peaceful and that women don't fight back which is when um, one of the the young attractive breeders played by some supermodel, I don't know her name, is talking to one of the older women um, at the campfire. And she's, who, and this older woman is talking about how when men come and attack their camp, they shoot them right away, like on sight. And the breeder says to the older woman, well, I, aren't, you, aren't you guys supposed to be above all of that? And she says, well, you know, we were at one time, but that's not how things work anymore. You know, we have to... I think she says, snap one off. Well, I think that these, these you know, this time is such an interesting time for efforts at being feminist. I think that there's basically, as you sort of insinuated, there's never really making anyone happy with anything. I think that Mad Max was great. I think that especially in a in a genre that is so male-dominated, like so viscerally male-dominated, you know, you have movies like The Expendables, and which is almost entirely a cast of dudes. You have, uh, you know, what was the, the Tom Cruise movie that came out last year um, where he was a character who couldn't die? The Edge of Tomorrow, uh, which came out last year and, and people kind of hailed that movie as being uh, great because Emily Blunt played this very strong uh, female character and the guy was sort of this like you know Tom Cruise played this kind of putz who eventually gets better because he like in Groundhog Day uh, Groundhog Day can't die uh, but that was also kind of uh, ruined by the end you know she ends up becoming a kind of love interest too and you know inexplicably almost and, and there is the sense that um, that you know partway steps are not good enough and I find that to be a very uh, strange thing, you know, in movies and beyond that, that you know, the, the, the minor steps that we have uh, aren't good enough to, to be at least steps. Aren't, isn't progress come in steps? Yeah, I, I agree. I entirely agree with that. I think that in this movie, the scenario that the, the boys are bred for fighting and the women are bred for breeding, I mean, it seems like a pretty believable state of biological exploitation in an apocalypse. Uh, and and it, so I don't have so much problem with the plot. I mean, it certainly is progress in a very sexist film industry, um, but I don't think it's the feminist tour de force everybody's making it out to be either. But I think that's kind of what you're talking about. I think it's it can have a check in the pro column and it can have a check in the con column. It doesn't, you don't have to. When I think of feminist, what it means to be a feminist movie though, because pop culture is all about representation, I think right. about what it would mean for a young woman or girl to watch that movie and what she would take away from it. And I think in that sense, I mean, it's unlikely a young girl would go to that movie because it's extremely violent and probably rated R. But if she were to see it, she I think one of the most uh, important parts of the film is when um, there's a scene when there's a car, an enemy vehicle approaching, and 
Mad Max only has two shots left on his gun, two bullets left, and he takes one and misses the car. Mm -hmm. And then um, he realizes that Furiosa is a much better shot than him, mm -hmm. and so he just lets her take the shot. And that's sort of unheard of and would never yeah. have happened. But for that and scene, the antidote to that scene is that there's one where the supermodel scantily clad uh, breeder wives are hosing each other down. So that's in the movie too. Well, it's still a movie. You have to have <laughs> some, you know. But I mean, you know, like that's then when you say that, people go like, whoa, 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 don't get, you know, there's people say like it can't be perfect you have to have, you have, to have some everyone. hot you have to have something for everyone so and don't it's logical they would be you know. hosing themselves down they were well it's dirty. also logical if they were constant mothers that they would look more like it like have childbearing hips you'd think and... they would get better rations and, from the <laughs> certainly you'd have, they'd have to be well nourished if they're yeah, constantly if pumping out the kids world, we should really talk about <laughs> and what and the, they just pour water out from the spouts and they're like oh good we're good yeah where's that water coming from Let's figure it out. Um, but but I will say that it's, I mean, certainly if you were a young woman and you saw the movie is one thing, but like another angle to take is like that movie is not written by women and it's not directed by women. So that's what I mean about the the, the sexist film industry. It's one thing to be representation and then it's like, what's well, what's happening behind the scenes and who's getting to tell the stories? Not just what story is being told, but it's, I think it's two sides of the same coin. Um, but then, but then, you know, let's talk about then uh, Pitch Perfect 2 because that is a movie that is uh, directed by uh, a woman, Elizabeth Banks. It's mm -hmm. written by uh, a woman, Cannon. Kay Cannon of 30 Rock and New Girl and SNL. Uh, it stars almost entirely women. It's, you know, helmed by Anna Kendrick and Rebel Wilson. Uh, in both, we're talking about, I mean, it's what you were saying, Emma, the idea of representation. And, uh, you know, if Mad Max is uh, really, Mad Max is for men, you know, they came expecting kind of like a, a, a dude's action movie, you know, kind of like the, the, the Gibson movies of of yesteryear. But, uh, you know, the the target audience of Pitch Perfect 2 is is no question that that group of is is, is girls, is younger girls uh, that sort of are looking to this movie and saying, hey, like, what does this say about, you know, body message and, and all that stuff? Does that what do you guys think of Pitch Perfect 2 as a movie? I thought they were a little too heavy handed with the the stereotypes. The singing part was really fun. Like that was mm -hmm. uh, it's it's like Glee. When in the first season of Glee, I loved the first season of Glee, and that's what it reminded me of. But like I said, with the stereotypes in this gang, this acapella group, it's kind of like a sorority. All these women, and there's like the the Asian girl who's very quiet, and then there's like the sexually aggressive butch lesbian, and the woman that's from South America who talks about she's going to get deported when she graduates, and you're just like, oh yeah, there's that. Sure. But you know, again, like I. I feel because it was directed by Elizabeth Banks, written by Kate Cannon, it kind of created a zero-sum feminism for me on that right. one. <laughs> well, this, the impact uh, the impact is industrial, I guess is my saying. So, like, where, Ma where Mad Max, I felt like uh, the feminism was uh, inherent in, like, the culture. And, and you know, you're, say you're introducing, uh, you know, what is weirdly radical ideas to, you know, do to go see action movies. Here, I think this is, th there's, I think Pitch Perfect 2 was slammed a lot for having a lot of those like, one-note characters but at the same time this is uh this is like a pretty important film the uh it is actually on track to beat uh to take the record for um highest grossing movie uh ever directed by a woman the current holder is mama mia uh Felidia mm -hmm. lloyd directed that in 2008 um the fact that though there are like rebel wilson's character is a you know uh, has is that kind of one-dimensional character too? There is that kind of uh, body image conversation because she is a bigger girl, but also like loves it and is like very bold and brassy and awesome. Again, it's not um, one or the other, yeah. right? Like it has 
notes in the pro column, notes mm-hmm. or checks in the pro column, checks in the con column. It te- it passes certainly passes the Bechdel test, which is two women uh, in a movie who talk about something other than a man. I mean, obviously, the, the the goal of this movie is for them to win a championship. So they're talking about community working together, how to achieve a, a common goal. So is that how useful and productive are these conversations? Like, we are not the first, uh, you know, podcast or whatever to, to ha- think about this. Like, oh, is this feminism more valuable than this feminism? Or like, oh, should we be having these feminist movies? Are these conversations useful? Like, we're, this was this was a unique opportunity because there was this weekend that pitted the two of them together. Um, but is this like is this useful? I would say that the the use of things like this is to realize that there's not solely two camps. Something is feminist or something is not feminist. Especially with something like a a movie, there there's a way to pick apart certain aspects of of a movie and say like, well, they did well here and they could have done better there. Like, it's not just sometimes it's not as easy as just a rubber stamp of pass or fail. Mm-hmm. I think it actually is useful because although it seems like a lot of hot air at first, what conversations like this do is, especially when we when they're positive conversations and they're approving conversations of of the film or whatever feminist movie or piece of art has come out, is that it sort of sets a tone for future projects and shows that there is acceptance and that people are into that and people want more of that like when orange and a new new, standard yeah a new standard it sets a new standard so i think it's part of it is that it's unprecedented to see you know a female action hero or marks woman who like takes the shot away from the male action hero and we talk about that because it's unprecedented and we talk about the fact that we like it and then hopefully there will be more movies like that in the future well that's it for this week Find new episodes every Friday at mcclains.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. We'd love it if you wrote us a review or a comment on iTunes, or if you'd like, you can tell us your thoughts about what we talked about with a comment on our site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on The Hill or our books podcast, The Bibliopod. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J and me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>